0: Welcome to Brain Chat. I'm Dr. Mitzi Joy Williams, your board-certified neurologist and MS specialist, and my mission is to engage, educate, and empower those affected by MS to become an active part of their healthcare team. Here on Brain Chat, we'll be discussing all things MS, health and wellness, advocacy, and we'll even throw a little bit of music and music therapy in there as well. Thank you so much for joining us, and stay tuned for the next episode. Hello friends, happy Monday and welcome to Brain Chat. It's Dr. Mitzi, your board certified neurologist and MS doc. And I am so excited to join you all on another Monday for Brain Chat. We've got an extremely special guest that I'm super excited about. Um, And you guys know how we do at the beginning of the show, log into the chat, tell me where you are logging in from, where you are viewing from. I love to know who's watching the show and where you're watching from. Um, and I thank you so much for taking a little bit of time on your Monday night to spend some time with us. So we want to uh, first start off by thanking our sponsors. You can visit more to learn more information about one of our sponsors, um, Janssen. Um, and we're so excited to be talking about family planning tonight. So May is Women's Health Month. Um, and I think that, you know, family planning is a large part of that. Uh, certainly is not all uh, that our women are concerned about, but something that we definitely want to discuss here on Brain. Chat. So I am super excited to have an amazing guest with me tonight from. California. So we're on opposite sides of the country, but we will be chatting it up um, on the Brain Chat um, Facebook Live and podcast today. So here we go. Let's talk about Dr. Beauvais. So she is an associate professor of neurology at UCSF, and she is the director of digital innovation in the UCSF MS group. She sees patients there. Um, She obtained her BA from Harvard and her MD in MS... MMSC degrees from Harvard University. She did internship, residency, and neuroimmunology fellowship at Mass General um, Brigham. And her research is on sex and gender-informed neurology. um, And uh, it has been funded by the NIH, the National Mass Society, uh, the California Initiative to Advance Precision Medicine, Hilton Foundation, and from industry partners. Um, She has done Fulbright work on social determinants of health um, of women and children. Um, in West Africa, and her current clinical research is on caring for MS during pregnancy and the menopausal transition. Um, She has also done uh, research focused on gaps in women's health and promoting sex and gender-informed neurology. I am so, so, so super excited to have Dr. Bovee with me, and I am going to bring her into the stream. Hi there, Dr. Bovee! Hi, Dr. Williams. How are you?
1: <laughs>
0: Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. We are. Do- I'm doing great here. So Georgia, you know, it's a little later than it is in California, but mm-hmm. I understand you've had a long day, too. So, mm-hmm. you know, the days can be long, even if we're on opposite sides of the country. Um, so anyway, thank you so much for joining us. And with everyone that comes to uh, Brain Chat, I love to just kind of first start off by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into The field of MS? Yeah,
1: um, great question. So, um, there's a couple things that I just love about um, taking care of people with MS and also doing research on MS. And one is I just think the brain is fascinating and people are fascinating. And I just love the personality um, aspect of neurology. You know, um, I've always found. Brain health much more exciting to think about than you know kidney health and or you know skin health. Um, and then when I was thinking about MS specifically, I love the fact that we can really make a difference um, mm-hmm. with medication. We can make a difference with um, whole person care and with lifestyle. Um, and we can really be um, engaged in people's lives for a very long time. And those are things I really love. And specifically, um, you know. Mass effects three times more females than males, and there's a lot of hormonal regulation. So that's just so fun to think about and to sort of think about how to how to guide people um, during all of their reproductive transitions. So yeah, just a lot going on there. Yeah, <laughs>
0: amazing, amazing. You know, and that's also one of the reasons that I loved. Um, MS was that longevity that I get with my patients. So when somebody asks me, "Hey, Dr. Mitzi, Miss Jones called. Do you know Miss Jones?" I'm like, mm-hmm. "I know Miss Jones. Mm-hmm. I know her mama. I know her kids. I know her mm-hmm. grandma. I know her spouse. Mm-hmm. You know." And so mm-hmm. I love that I get that engagement, um, but also that we get to take care of the whole person, you know, because we do spend a lot of time with people, especially very early on in the journey, and when they're in periods of transition. Um, and most of our patients are women, so it also helps that. Many many, many people feel like they can relate um, to me as a woman, you know, Mm -hmm. and maybe tell me some things they might not tell their male doctor sometimes. Mm -hmm. So um, so Mm -hmm. that part is kind of cool too. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's get into talking about family planning. So I really Mm -hmm. wanted to address this during Women's Health Month um, because there often are a lot of questions around family planning. And I wanted to start with kind of a bit of a historical perspective. So some of my patients who are Um, a little older or a little more mature, as I like to say, will come in and say, well, you know, when I was young and I got diagnosed with MS, they told me not to have kids. So let's talk a little bit about that historical aspect and how that has changed over time.
1: Great. And it is fun that it's during Women's Health Month and also the day after Mother's Day. And so just yes. really thinking about how to support the people who want to be mothers and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that it, it's a great historical um, transition, Dr. Williams, because I think for a long time, truthfully, a lot of the neurologists were men. And um, there was not a lot of good research into women's health. And so the sort of most kind of cautious approach was just to steer clear of it all altogether and just advise patients to not have children that you know, by you know they shouldn't have kids, that they may not be able to fully care for, and all these kinds of things. And what we've seen over time is that um, many of our patients can do very, very well, and many of our patients want to have family, although not all. And actually, we can use medicine and good advice to help our patients achieve the goals that they have, um, the goals that they set out to achieve. And so I think the field has really changed um, where we're actually um, working on, you know, doing the research to actually support the advice that we give, um, not just steering clear, but actually doing the work and trying to answer the questions and listening to our patients and what their goals are and what their questions are so that we can b- do better research. And then, you know, finally, you know, advising people today that it's really about their fertility goals, their childbearing goals, and what um, is possible from a fertility span- standpoint. and. Our job as the MS neurologist is just to support those goals and help um, sort of optimize stability around those mm-hmm. goals. So I think the field, as you said, has changed a lot um, in yeah. the last decade or
0: two. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so important. And you said so many keywords in there. Support women, right? Um, and listen to our patients and support their goals. I think there also has been really a transition in the neurology community you know, with this advent of shared decision-making, which should be the way that we treat our patients all the time. And for those of you that don't know what shared decision-making is, it means that you're an active part of your healthcare team. As a person living with a condition, you bring your knowledge of your body and your you know, living situation and goals to the table. The physician brings their knowledge um, and the goals to the table. And we work together to try to come up with the best plan um, that is for you. And that plan may look different than someone else's plan. And so I think that, you know, this is a key component when trying to, you know, talk about subjects like family planning is that shared decision-making. What are your goals? And so for my patients um, who are of childbearing age, You know, that's a common question that I ask them, you know, are you thinking about having babies or they may bring it to the table? You know, I'm thinking about having kids. And I think that now with reproductive technology that's changed so much, some of my patients who used to be considered kind of older and not wanting to have kids are still wanting to have kids or they're going through things like freezing their eggs, right? In preparation, you know, so there's so many different things people can do now. um, And it's so amazing. So let's kind of talk about what that conversation looks like, right? Right. When someone comes into the office and says, you know, I want to have a baby or I'm ready to have a baby. What does that conversation look like, um, you know, between you and your patients um, when they talk about that subject with you?
1: Um, I think one key thing is that when they're ready to have a baby, that's probably not the first time we've broached the topic. And mm-hmm. so it's really important. And I know you and I have talked about this you know, before, but it's really important that we're actually assessing um, a person's goals every time we see them so mm-hmm. that it doesn't come as a surprise when, you know, there's the day that they, that they actually are ready to start a family. And so a lot of times we'll sort of broach the conversation. Is there an interest in the future? You know, what, what's the time uh, frame? Is there a partner involved? What are their concerns or, you know, um, Preferences, kind of laying a little bit of the groundwork, and sometimes people will say, you know, no, 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 and no, and you know, uh, I'm not interested. And then the next visit, they might be like, now I am, you know, or right. so, you know, <laughs> they right. definitely you can change your
0: mind. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they met the right person. They had the you know, or you know, or they decided that it's not for them, you know. But so I think really one key thing is that. We lay the groundwork and start some of the just counseling and conversation around this. Um, the first time we start talking about treatments, when we talk about a person's life goals, and then we revisit it. It can be a sentence. It can be a conversation um, at every visit so that when a patient is ready to start thinking about childbearing um, or, or as you mentioned, sort of, you know, either IVF or egg freezing or maybe IUI if they're in a partnership with a woman or, you know, whatever the, whatever the, the decision making is, when they're ready, um, it's not sort of a surprise. And we have sort of phased a little bit. Um, so then, you know, the approach is always one of thinking about. Um, you know what their goals are primarily what their um, fears are <laughs> and mm-hmm. then thinking about specifically um, you know two things how can we optimize the window of actually getting pregnant how can we opt how, how can we optimize the likelihood of getting pregnant um, in the window that we have off therapy that's one big piece so right. if we need to think about, You know, are you going to need any fertility help, et cetera? We do some of that groundwork ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And then also thinking about how do we optimize the safety of of the sort of pregnancy? Um, Do we need to stop the medicine? If so, what's the time frame? Or can we continue it? So I think those are two things. How do we optimize the fertility? And then what do we do about the medicine as sort of the two real kind of shared decision making pieces?
0: Right. And yeah. so, you know, the, it's so you said so much that was important there. And I think that's why one of the things that I think was most important in the title was family planning. So the first thing, you know, I asked people about their interests, but I'm like, listen, if we want to get pregnant, We need to plan. Now, we can't prevent everything, right? And we know that many pregnancies are unplanned, but certainly with many of our medications, we counsel people, you know, you need to be on birth control. You know, if you're ready to have a baby, let's talk about it from the beginning. Let's try to plan it out to the best of our ability. And then we also have to have these contingency plans because everybody doesn't just come off their birth control and get pregnant the next day. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes it takes a while, you know. So the piece that you said about thinking about fertility, if there are issues there, kind of working those things up ahead of time, you know, so that we can see what we need to do about medications, um, you know, will make a big difference in how someone does. Now, traditionally, when I first started practicing, if somebody said the word pregnancy, we took them off the other medications and we just kind of said, let's see how it goes. And we'll check in every couple months. How has that thinking changed? I know there's been some literature that's been produced. I know that you and others are doing work focused on pregnancy, focused on breastfeeding. We have lots of registries now with our disease modifying therapies that tell us about outcomes. So tell us how that thinking has changed and kind of some of the general approaches that we look at with medications um, during pregnancy up until conception, you know, or, you know, just whether we stop. Completely. Yeah.
1: So I think it's changed a lot for a couple of reasons. One is that we've realized that there's a huge mismatch between what the label says and what makes sense biologically. So, wow. you know, that classic example, you know, is is the monoclonal medicines where the label will say do not conceive for six months or 12 months after an infusion. But we know that they're really out of a person's system much, much sooner. So right. one, one thing that's changed is just like the labels don't make biological sense. Right. Um, the labels are sort of CYA careful, but right. they're not really, you know, Informed. The second thing that's B-Y-A changed,
0: for cover your assets.
1: Thank you. <laughs> 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 um, the next, the next thing that's changed is um, I think there's been a lot of people who have as you mentioned, maybe gotten pregnant without intending to, or maybe said, I'm just going to go based on what makes sense biologically and not the label. And so there's a lot of what we call real world evidence, where it's just people in the real world doing what they do. And then we study that and figure out, oh, well, maybe the safety isn't so you know scary or whoa, maybe there is a concern. And so we really look at what people do um, after a medication has entered the real world and kind of see what the safety you know, uh, uh, profile is there. And then the third thing that we've done is when we took people off some medicines, we saw that actually they rebounded. And so the mm-hmm. specific medicines um, are Jelenia and, to, and the medicines like Jelenia and Tissabri. And, and mm-hmm. we saw that when we took people off the medicine, Their immune system, it was sort of like the cats away and the mice come out to play. The immune Mm -hmm. system, you took the medicine away and the the immune system really reactivated and sometimes really dramatically and severely. And so we realized that just taking people willy-nilly off their meds is not always the best decision. And so I think Mm -hmm. with those three kind of big picture pieces, we've become a lot more thoughtful about what we do. And Mm -hmm. so sometimes we're actually, you know, sort of going with a patient's preference to have zero drug on board whatsoever at the time that they conceive. Um, And other times we're thinking, okay, well, maybe this patient really could really relapse if we took them off their medicine, or if they were waiting a long time to get pregnant. And so maybe we'll keep them on something for as long as we can. Um, Mm
0: -hmm. And so
1: all of those kind of big-picture pieces go into the individual decision-making. And from an individual decision-making standpoint, um, maybe we can keep some of our patients on those first-line self-injectable therapies like the Copaxones, the Interferons, up until pregnancy or even through pregnancy. Mm
0: -hmm. Maybe
1: we can keep the patients on the infusion medicines, um, you know, up until pregnancy or sometimes during pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And maybe we still need to be really careful about the oral therapies is kind of Mm -hmm. what we're thinking. Each time we're balancing a patient's risk of MS activation and also their preferences around, you know, what exposure they would tolerate. So I think those are the general guidelines, but we can also get specific,
0: (laughs) you know. Yeah, yeah, we can get into the weeds. Yeah, Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, again, there's so many things and we keep coming back to that shared decision making, right? So that coming up with that plan that's specific for that person, you know, but I think that one of the key takeaways is that this advent of what we call real world evidence, looking at how medicines perform in the real world, looking at what happens to people in the real world world, um, you know, has really helped us to inform our decisions better when counseling our patients, you know, because obviously you can't do research trials on pregnant women, right? That's not really ethical (laughs) to take people off or put them on and off their medicine, right? Um, But you can see what happens once something is in the real world and then use that information to determine, um, you know, what's the best course of action for that particular person. So, you know, in thinking about just kind of taking a step back, looking generally at pregnancy, I've had a lot of patients that have asked me, you know, Dr. Mitzi, um, do I have a high-risk pregnancy because I have MS? How would you answer that question?
1: That's a great question. Um, There's a couple things about the pregnancy piece and a couple things about the MS piece. Mm -hmm. So the MS piece... um, during pregnancy, in general, MS quiets down, and people will be familiar with a pregnancy effect on different autoimmune diseases. So, you know, rheumatoid arthritis quiets down, lupus acts up. So we have to be kind of thinking about what does the, what does the condition do itself? So during pregnancy, MS kind of quiets down a little bit, and then it activates a little bit postpartum.
0: Mm-hmm. So and what, and what, if, I, yeah. if you don't mind me asking, why do we think it quiets down during present pregnancy? Is it like an immunosuppressive effect, or yeah? Do we know? It's a why? great
1: question. Um, the immune system has to change during pregnancy because mm-hmm. the 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 body has to tolerate a foreign organism, the fetus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Half of the DNA is from the mom, who's sort of carrying the fetus and half of it is from the other parent. (laughs) And so, or the other, you know, contributor, genetic contributor. And so the, the body has to tolerate DNA that's foreign. And in order to do that, the immune system has to shift. And so Mm. we, I think a a good term is immunotolerant because Mm. the immune system has to tolerate um, the fetal DNA, And to do that, you would see a lot of shifts in different aspects of the immune system. And historically, we said it was a T helper, you know, subsets that change, but it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, but in general, um, the immune system has to adapt. And so sometimes the way that it adapts works in favor of some autoimmune conditions, like mm-hmm. the, the, you know, the they're like the lucky, you know, kind of tag alongs in the system. And sometimes it works not in the favor of the immune condition. And so each kind. of kind of ratio of the you know pro or the anti-inflammatory pieces is going to affect each different condition and each person somewhat differently um but so we do see that immunotolerance state in pregnancy um in ms and so we see uh, in general people have fewer relapses and also it looks like pregnancy does something good not just to the risk of relapses but also symptoms patients often say and i bet they tell you the same thing that they feel good during their pregnancy they feel mm-hmm. sometimes they say i don't i feel like i don't have ms or
0: mm-hmm. you know
1: just a little better
0: and especially that they, second trimester that second yes. trimester they yeah. often yeah. feel great
1: yeah not to say that there aren't other things the fatigue or the sleep or the bladder but you know that from the ms standpoint sometimes they feel a little better and then when the baby is delivered then the immune system kind of like veer you know swings back like a pendulum the other way and sometimes it can overshoot and be kind of extra active. And so that's when you know we worry about the postpartum piece. And so I think you know one one thing is the MS shifts a little bit. Um, and then the second thing is does MS affect the pregnancy in general? We don't mm-hmm. really see that in any big way that MS affects a person's ability to get pregnant. It may affect their mood or their libido or kind of, you know, their their energy level, which are going to affect, you know, um, sort of downstream, whether they're in the situation where they might get pregnant. But it doesn't necessarily affect their hormones in a major way, we don't think. Um, and we don't really see that it affects sort of overall the likely, you know, the the likelihood of a pregnancy going to term or the size of the baby. There may be a few a few um, sort of caveats to that, but mostly MS doesn't seem to affect the outcome of the actual pregnancy in any major way. Um, so, you know, people can get pregnant and can have, you know, a healthy pregnancy. And so in general, if, you know, if all things are going well, maybe it's not even considered a high-risk pregnancy. mm mm-hmm. We do see that women who have some more advanced MS, maybe they're doing a little worse. They seem to have a higher likelihood of having like an operative delivery, whether it's forceps or a cesarean. And we're not sure if that's because they need it or because the doctors are being careful.
0: Mm I think That's the one
1: thing we kind of, we don't know a lot about women who have more, you know, advanced disability, but in general, um, if there aren't sort of treatment, you know, if there aren't questions about the MS therapy, sometimes people don't even need to see a high-risk OB. At least mm-hmm. that's kind of the general guidance. I don't know if if that's kind of what you tell your patients as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, I mean, so I think the key takeaways here, things that I relate to my patients are that, you know, as far as we know and as far as the research suggests, just the fact that you have MS doesn't necessarily mean you'll have a complicated pregnancy. So we're not talking about medications, we're not talking about side effects of medication. We're saying just because you have MS doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have poor outcomes. It should not affect your fertility, um your mm-hmm. ability to get pregnant as you said, um, you know, but certainly if people do have more disability, especially if you have weakness in your legs or spasticity or real tightness in your legs where you can't straighten them out, that could Mm -hmm. cause some issues with delivery um, itself, you know? So I I offer my patients pretty similar advice, you know, to what you suggested. So, Mm -hmm. okay. So we talked about, you know, kind of getting pregnant. We talked about a little bit about some of the medications with pregnancy. Let's talk a little bit about fertility. So we kind of touched on it a little bit, but now, you know, So when I started practicing, fertility treatments were either extremely expensive, not covered by insurance, or not really an option for many of our patients. So we used to just take them off their medicines, have them try for a little bit. Sometimes we would take a break, go back on medicines. But now we have people who are getting hormones for fertility treatments where they need eggs harvested and things like that, or either they're getting, you know, insemination, things like that. How does that affect, you know, interruption of treatment or, you know, the treatment cycle with MS?
1: Yeah. Um, that's a great question. And it's one where we have like hot off the press kind of information that Ooh. kind of does, like change things a little bit. So, um, you know, as you well know, you know, for about five studies in a row from different parts of the world suggested that women who are getting like active fertility treatment, so mostly IVF, um, mm-hmm. experienced relapses. Uh, Mm. during or after their cycles. And that really was quite concerning. And what we've seen since then in several studies, um, a small one that's published, but some other studies that have been recently presented at conferences and that are kind of trickling through to publication is that if you take women today and you keep them on their medicine, they do fine. They don't Mm. have relapses. And so one of the key things is to think about safe and effective therapies for MS that we can keep patients on so that they can just get through their fertility treatment, you know, as sort of efficiently and best they can. Um, mm-hmm. And then the and then the other thing that we're figuring out a little bit is different fertility treatments mean different things. So yeah. you have like the full gamut of IVF, where you're stimulating the ovaries. Where you're then you're getting the eggs and then you're fertilizing them in vitro and then putting the embryo transferring the embryo back into the uterus so that's kind of like the full IVF but some people just do ovarian stimulation to kind of get that you know the eggs going and then they just sort of have sort of spontaneous you know sort of like um, they they conceive um Uh, sort of without the IVF or the egg um, harvesting piece. Some people do egg harvesting for fertility preservation and don't transfer any embryos back into the uterus. And some people... Just do IUI, where you're just sort of inserting sperm um, without any hormonal treatment, and so mm-hmm. it's a lot. The landscape has changed a lot, and then some people do embryo transfer from donor egg, um, mm-hmm. and so you know the there you can have a couple of them and options or kind of the full IVF, and so we're seeing that the picture is a little bit different according to what people do, um, mm-hmm. and I think the take home point is again, we can work to support a patient's fertility treatment and fertility plan, and we can work around that with medicine. And mm-hmm. so thinking about safe medicines, um, effective medicines that we can keep patients on during the process is probably the key to helping them get through it um, and mm-hmm. get through it with stable enough.
0: Okay. And which ones would you generally consider safe? You know, so um, now we talked about the injectable medications, which we now have upwards of 20 years of data on those therapies. And we know that they're relatively safe during pregnancy. You know, in some of the earlier studies, we thought that they may have caused spontaneous abortions, um, but many people can take those medications safely. So in this kind of new era of medications, um, which ones are relatively safe um, or have been shown to be relatively safe from the data we have available?
1: Yeah. So the oral medicines, the pills, we're still proceed with a lot of caution. Um, Mm -hmm. They may not be. um, So the Jelenia is sort of the one that has been associated with some congenital malformations and also with that rebound, if you stop it, Early on in pregnancy, you're risking a big relapse. Mm-hmm. Um, the Abagio people are supposed to stay away from because of a risk of, you know, sort of true sort of teratogenicity. Um, uh, the, the Tecfidera and the Cladribine, the picture may be a little more mixed. Um, mm-hmm. So that's the orals. So then, as you mentioned, the self-injectables are considered quite safe. To continue certainly up to the point of, you know, we would say conception or embryo transfer, right? Mm-hmm. Like when the baby's actually going to, the, the embryo is going to actually be transferred and then implant and then establish a blood supply. And that's when it could actually even see drug in the mom if it were mm-hmm. to cross the placenta. So mm-hmm. the self injectables are considered safe certainly to the point of embryo transfer and maybe even up to the point of sort of placentation or maybe all the way through pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're not the most effective. They're safe and they're some of our least effective therapies, right? Mm -hmm. So the Mm -hmm. other flip piece are the infusible medicines or the monoclonal antibodies. So there we're really thinking about Tisabri as a class and we're thinking about the B cell depleting medicines Mm-hmm. Ovars, rituxan, and casimta follows suit. Even though it's a self-injectable, it's not an mm-hmm. IV medicine. And those monoclonal medicines are actually very effective, and they don't cross the placenta in the first trimester. And so it does give us a little wiggle room um, to right. figure out what's happening. Certainly to help patients through the ovarian stimulation piece, um, and maybe to think about when to time them relative to the embryo transfer piece.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: We have a lot of pieces to work with.
0: (laughs) Yes, 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 absolutely. You know, and we have a lot more options to work with than we had, you know, even 10 years ago. And I think, you know, the key with all of this, you know, um, especially with programs like this is that we are not offering particular medical advice to anyone. But, you know, the important thing is to go back to your team and talk to your team about what the best plan for you is. You know, each person does differently on different medications. There are some people who do really well on on medicines that are considered less effective and others that don't do well on ones that are considered more, you know, but the bottom line is, you know, we do have options. We do have data. Um, It is not a you know, thing where we are telling people absolutely don't get pregnant. As a matter of fact, I always give this caveat or this story of one patient I had who basically almost felt like she was treating her MS with pregnancy. So, you know, the last time I saw her, she was on baby number six. And I was like, <laughs> really? And she was like, I'm like, well, if you can feed them, she would get pregnant, mm-hmm. breastfeed, and then have another, be- did she get pregnant mm-hmm. again, breastfeed, did she get pregnant? So mm-hmm. every time she comes to talk to, be me about medicine, either she was breastfeeding or she was pregnant again. Um, you know, mm-hmm. so we don't recommend that as a treatment for MS. But, you know, again, it goes to say that the thinking has really changed over time, but we do want people to achieve their goals, to plan their families, um, but to do it safely. And we also have to weigh the risk of, you know, medication with the risk of bad MS flaring up, um, because we do want you to be able to take care of those kids once you have them. So let's talk about Breastfeeding, right? So you know we have gone through these transitions in society. Um, I remember when I had my kids, you know, breastfeeding. You know, we know that it's very good for the baby. However, you know, my mom did formula, and at the time that was all the rage and just as good as breastfeeding. So Mm -hmm. let's talk about kind of you know making the decision about breastfeeding. Is it safe to take medications while breastfeeding? Um, Mm -hmm. And then the other question that I often get. is how long can I breastfeed, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So what I generally kind of start with is that, you know, we think that the activity of your disease pre-pregnancy may predict your activity post-pregnancy, you know? So if I have Mm -hmm. somebody with really, really active MS, you know, we may be watching them very closely and saying, all right, we need to be really considering getting back on medicine right away. Um, But what are your thoughts about that? And how do you counsel um, your patients?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think... um You know, the the first thing is that fed is best, right? So Mm -hmm. we, I think that it's important that we state, I think people need to hear that if they don't want to breastfeed or if they can't for whatever reason, or if they want to and can, and it just doesn't work for a particular baby or particular, you know, parent baby duo, that's okay. Like the baby right. just, you know, the baby needs to be fed. And I think that people need to hear that. But let's say there is a plan to breastfeed. Um, mm-hmm. Then what do we know? We know that breastfeeding is good for the mom um, it, long-term, just in, in terms of general health. And it's good for the baby long-term in terms of general health. It's also good for the mom specifically with respect to MS. So Mm -hmm. during that period where a mom is breastfeeding exclusively, so giving only breast milk, no other, you know, supplement to the baby. um, During that time, there is a period where the mom is protected against relapses. Exclusive breastfeeding ends. It ends at around six months and then you have, you just can't meet the baby's growing demands and so you have to add stuff and then the protective effect of breastfeeding against MS goes away but it still has beneficial effects if people want to continue so Mm -hmm. in all of that what do we do if if a mom you know delivers and has no plan to breastfeed or had a plan but it didn't work out then we want to get people back on their meds as soon as we can Mm -hmm. But if they want to breastfeed, then the first thing we have to do is support it and support it, like put our care behind it. So if it's difficult, get a lactation expert. Right. Mm -hmm. You You know, what what do you need to do this successfully and really give people the resources? Because. As common as breastfeeding is in sort of humanity and the rest of the animal world, um, it's not easy. It is
0: not easy. It is not easy (laughs) at all.
1: (laughs) It hurts. It's hard. It's people need a lot lot more
0: sleep deprivation. Dad can't help.
1: (laughs) It is not easy, and you know. You know, in 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 a lot of Western cultures, people don't grow up just watching breastfeeding happen around them. And there's a lot Mm -hmm. of taboo. And so people may not really know how to hold the baby or what to do. And so if someone wants to breastfeed and we've decided that's the plan, then we need to support moms and babies, you know, with, you know, is the baby tongue tied? Like, what are all the pieces? So let's say we've put all of our kind of support behind the breastfeeding process and it's happening. So then um, we think about the safety of the meds. Like if if we can, then ideally the mom would get to breastfeed and the mom would get her meds. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, if that's a safe piece. And so there hasn't been enough research into medication safety during breastfeeding. Um, I have colleagues in different places who've put a ton, you know, they've poured their hearts into this research and really generated a lot of information. I've worked on generating some information for, you know, the B-cell depleting therapies, Ocrevus mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm and what we see in general is it's a lot it looks a lot better than we fear <laughs> so um, there you know for the self-injectable therapies and the monoclonal antibodies there's very little drug that crosses into breast milk mm-hmm. and for some people that's super reassuring and some people may want zero drug in breast milk for their baby right. so it's right. still an individual decision it's still about that shared decision making piece but People need evidence to make decisions, and I think we're getting the evidence. So, again, I, I think breastfeeding is not for everyone, but if it's going to happen, people need support. And if they're going for it, then we need to think about the drug safety. And a lot, of, a lot more medicines than we think are reasonably safe during breastfeeding. And so, you know, there's kind of updates happening all the time, and every few months we have new data to kind of guide yeah. that process.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That is amazing, you know, and I'm just so grateful, you know, for people really paying attention to this issue. And I think that a lot of it has to do with, you know, um it's- some change of the composition of neurologists, right? You know, there are lots of women who are, you know, doing this work to, you know, get the breast milk and, you know, to make sure that we're treating people as safely as possible and taking care of their MS. So um, that is very encouraging to hear. So we're coming close to the end. So I would encourage the audience, if you guys have any questions, please feel free to drop them in the chat. Um, But I would like to, you know, kind of as we round up our last thought, to all Always want to empower people, right? Um, so, what questions should people be asking their doctors um, about family planning? Like, what are what are the things that you need to know, especially when we're talking about, let's say, going on medications? You know, for a young woman who wants to have a family, let's say, not this year, but maybe in the next two years or so. Um, what are the questions they should be asking when they're going in to be seen?
1: Mm-hmm. That's that's a that's so key is people can do some thinking about what their goals might be. Um, And when you bring it up with your doctor, you deserve a doctor who knows, you know, some of this data. So if you find that your doctor doesn't, isn't up on these things, then you deserve to get a referral, at least for a one-time consult with a doctor who is, because Mm -hmm. this is a big decision. There's a lot of pieces and, you know, patients are making decisions for themselves, for the for the baby, for the family, and you deserve to have, you know, the support and, and, and information you need to make the decision. Then I think in terms of specific questions, in general, is there anything about the MS that would make getting pregnant difficult, um, you know, and how to optimize, maybe stop smoking, vitamin D, like, you know, exercise, what are the pieces that that one could do to sort of optimize one's likelihood of getting pregnant and having a a healthy pregnancy. And then in terms of specific MS care, um, what is the safety of the medicine during the pregnancy? What are sort of the parameters of when it should be stopped, if it should be stopped? Um, Is this a medicine that I should go on at all if I want to get pregnant? And if you're If you're thinking about a medicine um, that's going to give you a rebound, relapse, maybe you don't want to start that in the next year or two. It's not Mm -hmm. worth it. Um, So kind of thinking about those pieces. And then I think the other pieces, when you talk about, you know, whole person care and comprehensive care, um, we forget that people have a lot of rehab needs, you know, mm-hmm. around all of the pregnancy piece. Um, pelvic floor, physical therapy, strength mm-hmm. and all those things. So what do we do to optimize that function before the pregnancy? And then what do we do to optimize that function after the pregnancy. yeah. So I think thinking about that proactively is really helpful. And and then finally, mood is so important. It affects, you know, relationships. It affects perception of a pregnancy. It affects the postpartum course. And so just thinking about how can we really have a person feeling as well as they can and as informed as they can going into this process will really affect things long term.
0: Yeah, I love that. So um, what I'm hearing is, number one, you know, patients need to think about what their goals are, right? So, you know, before you go into the doctor, it's okay to sit down with your partner or if you're, um, you know, um, thinking about just being a single parent. Thinking about what your goals are ahead of time, right? So when you get to the office, that's not necessarily the time to plan out your life, right? So think about these things ahead of time and make sure that your doctor is knowledgeable. And if they're not, it's okay to seek a second opinion. It doesn't mean that you don't like your neurologist, doesn't mean that your neurologist isn't great, Um, but there are some people that may have extra expertise, you know, to at least give you another opinion. And I often have people that will come to me for a second opinion about something like family planning or counseling about specific issues. And then, you know, I may say the same thing that their other neurologist said, and they go back to their other neurologist, you know, which Mm -hmm. is fine. But it's okay to seek out that second opinion and get that additional information. And then, you know, making sure that you, you know, are knowledgeable, come up to that decision-making process with your doctor. And then the other thing that I hear you saying, which is really great, and also is in line with this kind of taking care of people across the continuum of care, is making sure that we Optimize your function before you get pregnant and then also optimize your function afterwards. So, you know, we want you in the best shape possible mood wise, physical wise, before you have the baby. Um, And But once you have the baby, we don't throw you in the... We don't throw you out with the bathwater, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) We want to make sure that you're doing okay after you have the baby so that you can Mm -hmm. take care of the baby. Um, And I think that those are key things because we want people to always leave with some type of knowledge or something that they can do or that they can talk to their family members about or their care partners um, about. You know, and so um, this has been amazing. This has been an amazing conversation. Um, And we probably need to do a part two at some point. But, um, you know, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for all the amazing work that you do. And do you have any parting thoughts for the Brain Chat audience? Um,
1: Well, thanks so much for having me today. It has been amazing chatting with you. And I think, you know, our job as neurologists is really to support the audience and achieving their goals as, as much as, as we can. And so I think, you know, you should uh, go forth feeling like there's, you know, a community of uh, neurological care and research behind you and, you know, working to working to support
0: your goals. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you all so much for spending this Monday evening with us. Um, here on Brain Chat and we'll see you again in two weeks on Monday night for our next episode. Have an amazing evening everyone.